0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19.
1: Andrew and I are thrilled today to again be hosting Dr. Krishna Udaya Kumar. Krishna, thanks so much for making time for us.
2: Always good to chat with you. Thanks for having me back.
1: So you're doing a lot of thinking now. You're in the midst of this process of trying to rethink where's the global strategy on COVID. We've participated in some of your convenings of the COVID gap effort, and they've been really interesting. And I know you're still in the thick of this. There's some sessions coming forward this week. The global situation has changed so fundamentally in many respects. And Many of the basic underlying assumptions and priorities have come under challenge. Earlier thinking looks somewhat outdated. People are now calling for a reset, but it's not always clear exactly what that means. And it's not always popular to sort of be calling into question some of those premises and arguing for a shift of any kind. There's a oftentimes in the midst of this kind of crisis, a, a tendency towards a kind of incrementalism of sorts, which is not too surprising but i think for many of us situation looks a little muddled and a little confusing so your efforts have been very welcome i think in trying to get people to articulate what needs to happen what should the priorities be what what's the implementation going to look like in this near term when we're talking about covid and all of the complex dimensions around vaccines therapies diagnostics local delivery capacity financing that whole spectrum of things so tell us It's a big, broad question to start with, but you're making a very concerted effort to try and bring some clarity to it. And it's very welcome and worthwhile. So what are you learning and where's your thinking?
2: Yeah, I think we're really at an inflection point here. We've said this a few times, but the next three to six months, I think are going to be critical in understanding how we're going to go forward as a global community with our COVID response over time. And in all our conversations, dozens of them with country level stakeholders, regional organizations, the global multilaterals, others that are helping to support this effort. What's become really clear is that one, COVID is not done with us. The pandemic continues. We're still losing thousands of lives every day. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of infections every day. But from a policy response perspective, Almost every single country in the world has moved past COVID being the number one or in many cases in the top three priorities for what's happening right now, especially in low and middle income countries. What we're hearing pretty consistently is that they are seeing a generational setback in routine immunization for children. They are dealing with food insecurity because of the geopolitical situation. They are not gaining momentum in their response to HIV, TB, malaria, and other health challenges. And what they see coming at them is an enormous burden from non-communicable diseases. And in the midst of that, they're seeing a drop off pretty significantly in deaths and hospitalizations from COVID. They recognize that we'll see future surges and need to have resources for that. But for the most part, the world has moved on in its response from the COVID-19 pandemic to. Understanding that there will still need to be resources applied there, but that can't take up as much of our bandwidth, as much of our resources as we've seen in the first two years of an emergency response. So I do think what happens in terms of global governance and in terms of financing over the coming months is going to make a big difference on how well we're prepared to continue to deal with future surges as well as the inevitable future global health security threat.
0: Christian, what kind of backlash are you seeing and resistance as you go through all this? Yeah, I think we're caught in this tension of sorts in that
2: we initially laid out a set of goals and, and we were certainly at the forefront You know, more than a year ago of saying we should have global targets that are based on equity and that we should really aim for global vaccination targets. And yet what's changed since then is that the virus has changed. We've seen with Omicron, especially, that the transmissibility is enormously higher than in the wild strain we've also recognized that the current role of available vaccines is not to stop transmission it's to prevent severe disease and that it requires more than two doses of almost any vaccine to do that consistently over time so our science has evolved and in many ways our global targets have not evolved as quickly to keep up with the rapid evolution in science so we're seeing on the ground people saying, we've got to move on. We don't have the money or the time or the prioritization to keep vaccinating our populations, especially low risk ones. And yet we don't want to give up this approach of equity being the driver of trying to increase primary vaccination rates in many countries. So until we deal with that more explicitly, I think we're going to find ourselves in a challenging policy environment where many of the global conversations with good intentions driven by equity are mismatched to what country leaders are saying they need at the moment.
1: I mean, we have an opportunity, for instance, when President Biden hosts in December the Africa Summit, we have another moment. We have the replenishment of the Global Fund coming forward very shortly. It was supposed to be next Monday because of the Queen's burial. It'll be a couple days later. President Biden hosting. You know, there's these moments coming forward in which restating or resetting the way we understand where the pandemic sits among a proliferating number of stresses and crises and demands, it's not a freestanding concern anymore. It can't be seen as a freestanding concern. It shouldn't be seen as something in a kind of zero-sum competition with debt relief, food insecurity. Extreme debt distress and all of the other things that you've mentioned that are shocks that people in Africa, other low income countries, middle income countries are facing. We'll have President Ramaphosa here on Friday visiting with President Biden. Another opportunity to sort of reframe what this is. What Andrew's getting at, I think, is that people got very passionate and very committed to a set of targets out of outrage and concern over the inequities that we saw, right? And and that kind of hardened up people's resolve. The virus changed. The pandemic changed. The response changed. Ukraine happened. And it's a very muddled, it's a much different environment. Shouldn't we be talking more about integration? Shouldn't we be incorporating these concerns about covid response into a broader context
2: you're absolutely right steve and as i look forward i think there's emerging principles that are not new but ones that we absolutely have to be committed to the first principle really has to be that countries have to be the decision makers and the country has to be the unit at which priorities are set we're hearing over and over that countries even though they might develop national plans and priorities are often beholden to donor priorities that are coming in with vertically financed funding models and countries are having very little opportunity to influence that at the ground level. So while the COVID response still maintains vertical funding for COVID related interventions, we've got to find a way to make every dollar go further than just for COVID, which to me, it leads to that second principle, which is that every single thing we do has to not just make a difference for the current COVID response, but to lead to some increased capacity in existing health systems, whether that's primary care or surveillance or adult vaccination or thinking about immunization from a lifecycle perspective something additional to the current emergency response has to be a clear benefit to every dollar we continue to spend, which gets to that really important point around integration. And then the third principle I'd lay out is if we can commit to saying we want to save the most lives most quickly and that's going to be the driver of equity for the COVID response, then we can make sure that we stay evolving in our priorities as the science evolves. And that would really mean recommitting to full vaccination, including boosters over time for the high risk and vulnerable populations in every country and having less of a priority on tracking and trying to increase primary vaccination rates in every country over time. It would also mean making sure that we're not focused just on vaccines. We have new interventions available like oral antivirals that can keep people out of hospitals that can save lives and can protect health systems in future surges. And we've seen almost no investment and very little prioritization to those interventions. So we really have to stay abreast of where the science is taking us and make sure that we're applying the science to try to save the most lives most quickly as part of these principles that we commit to.
0: Krishna, is it hard to move action on this when, you know, here domestically in the United States, everybody wants to be done with COVID. People don't want to talk about it. Most people I know don't really even know when they should get their next vaccination much less start thinking about equity around the world. Do you think that landscape makes it harder?
2: I think that's the case, not just in the U.S., but in my travels and my conversations with national leaders, they're all saying the same thing. We're seeing almost no public health measures in travel, for example. So there are lots of reasons that we all just want to be done with this. And I don't think that's a unique American phenomenon. And that is having an impact where people are seeing for the most part, a decoupling between infections and hospitalizations, poor outcomes and deaths. And if that's where science has gotten us, thank goodness, then why are we still following the same policy prescriptions as we did in the early days when we knew much less about the virus and had much fewer tools in our arsenal with which to deal with COVID? So I think this to me is less that the U.S. is over it and more that We've seen decoupling uh, in terms of uh, what I just talked about, the viral infections versus bad outcomes. But in some sense, we've also seen a decoupling between the advocacy around policy priorities relative to what the science would tell us in a rapidly evolving situation.
1: There's a lot of ferment right now in terms of trying to rethink where we are, right? The CDC, uh, Rochelle Walensky, director of CDC, has announced that she's initiating a pretty deep introspection process around its performance its role we have the release of the first annual review of the american pandemic preparedness plan the ap3 it's suffering from underinvestment but people aren't giving up they're coming forward and saying here's where we are this is what we need if we're going to get the next generation of vaccines that will be more durable that will stop infection that will treat multiple variants simultaneously, big challenge scientifically, financially, and other things. We've got a process within the State Department of changing the way that the State Department is organized in order to try and be more integrated to deal with health security and the traditional infectious diseases and other traditional areas of global health in the same framework That's all very promising. And you could point to, you know, the the international negotiations over a pandemic instrument. You can point to the ferment around creating the financial intermediary fund. And we've seen some new leadership come forward. So there's a lot happening intellectually and organizationally to try and bring about reform and rethinking. And it's not detached from the kind of appeal that you're making right now. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. You're right. There is a lot underway, which if moving toward the right vision could make a big difference over time. From the U.S. perspective, you laid out clearly, I think there is some reform underway in terms of our institutions, as well as the capacity within those institutions to deal with global health security challenges. We are starting to see, I think, over the next Six months. What will be the transition from the Act Accelerator, which was the major multilateral coordination mechanism that served a clear purpose in the midst of an emergency, uh, but is not clear what the future of that governance is going to look like? We will largely see internalization of a lot of programs into existing institutions. But what continues for coordination of those institutions for prioritization over time is going to be a really important point. And yes, I think it's a positive that the Financial Intermediary Fund has now formally been stood up. It has a board. It's moving forward. But like a lot of the challenges we're dealing with, the aspirations and targets in terms of financing are orders of magnitude off from reality of what we have. So some of the prioritization conversation we're trying to drive is to recognize that on one hand, we absolutely want to make sure that. We maximize the available funding available for COVID response for pandemic prevention, preparedness and response more broadly, but health challenges. And on the other hand, that we have a responsibility to be good stewards to make sure that we're using to maximum effectiveness and efficiency all of the funding that's currently available. And there, I don't think we have clarity yet on where the next dollar should go if it was an even an integrated decision point, which it's not. So we still, I think, have this tension of replenishment models and vertical programs. So the Global Fund is raising funds. CEPI tried to raise significant amount of funding. Gavi had a fundraise for COVAX. We're starting to see a fundraise on the horizon for polio. So all of these things exist. They're competing for many of the same dollars. So, yes, we need to reform our institutions, but we also need to make sure that we're reaching some better prioritization and putting COVID right now in the context of what else the world is dealing with.
0: Let's talk about how the US stocks or surpluses are approaching their expiration dates and what that means for the global supply. What's your take on that?
2: Yeah, if we look at the vaccine situation, At a global level, we're clearly at a point where there's a glut of supply that we're seeing billions of doses that have and will be wasted around the world, which is not necessarily a terrible thing if people are getting access to vaccines where they need it. But we're not seeing that global glut translate down to available and timely supply in every local situation. And that's the challenge. So how do we deal with the distribution, the delivery challenges, the demand generation, the behavior change that's going to be necessary? And frankly, we lost a window of opportunity where everybody in the world wanted vaccination. And coming back to many communities a year or year and a half later to say we have those vaccines now is not going to make that big a difference. So we should recognize that there's a time element, not just a supply versus need element to this conversation. And in many cases, we've lost that window. We're now starting to see even further complications as the U.S. is rolling out bivalent boosters, as other high income countries are starting to do the same. Even though we don't have any clinical evidence that they're better in terms of duration of immunity, the breadth of immunity they offer beyond animal models and some early human data. But without any clinical data, we've now just re-energized the inequity conversation by saying we have a set of vaccines that are only going to be available to the U- US and a few other high-income countries, and the rest of the world can have the vaccines that are now a year old and are about to expire, and good luck with those. Even though we know that scientifically, there's nothing to say the US bivalent boosters are better, we might get that data over time. But because of really poor communications, we've now made it harder for the rest of the world to energize those that need it most to actually get booster doses.
1: So what you're saying is that the controversy around the introduction of the bivalent in wealthy settings is going to start more and more discontent and perception of inequity and bias.
2: Absolutely. And we've seen this over and over when the U.S. many months ago put a pause on use of the J&J vaccine and eventually said it wasn't the preferred vaccine. It made sense in a U.S. context where we had abundant supply of other alternate models of available vaccines. And yet in parts of the world that didn't have that same Policy context, what we saw was a huge drop in demand and acceptance of that vaccine, and it hasn't really picked up steam since then. I think there's been an underappreciation for how policy pronouncements and decisions in the U.S. do have global repercussions, and we continue to face those and do pretty poorly in communicating to the rest of the world.
1: So we've got a situation where the demand side in low and middle, lower middle-income countries, the demand side has subsided significantly, right?
2: That's right, and I, I think we should be careful to make sure that we don't say people don't want vaccines or, or never wanted vaccines. That's absolutely not the case. We missed the window of opportunity. Opportunities where we could have rolled these out with a high level of demand. And now we need to make sure that we are continuing to invest in all of the demand side factors, which include demand generation, but include all of the distribution that's necessary to reach significantly under-resourced settings and to reach the most vulnerable and highest risk populations.
1: But what we've seen happen across the world is people have moved on. There's a wall of immunity through infection and through and through vaccination hospitalization and deaths dropping we've got other priorities that are coming in we have vaccine hesitancy and and refusal on a scale that we hadn't fully anticipated so it's a it's a really much more difficult environment and in that sense the demand side and the gaps in terms of delivery capacity and financing so those things are all at play so that you have a lot of countries that are stuck in this 20 30 40% coverage right which is what we talked about earlier as a kind of not a nightmare scenario, but a difficult scenario. If you have countries that don't ever get above that level, what is that going to mean?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is where initiatives like the COVID Vaccine Delivery Partnership, COVIDDP, or the Global Vax Initiative from the U.S. government are really targeting those situations and those countries that have been the furthest behind. And if you look at Tanzania, right, this is a country that had significant challenges, including a lack of recognition of COVID from the most senior levels of government, but they have since evolved. And if you look at the vaccine uptake in the last three months, they've gone from something like 7% up to almost 60% vaccination coverage. So it is feasible that it happens when it's led by community engagement coupled to the distribution and, and supply all coming together. So there are opportunities and we do need to take advantage of those opportunities where National leadership has made it a priority not to force this on on countries that that want to spend their limited resources on other priorities, but where there are possibilities, where there is alignment with national sets of targets, then I do think we can still make a push. But what remains a massive gap is really access to booster doses over time. And even if we're seeing rates of primary vaccination of 20 to 40 percent, if we're not protecting that 20 percent of the population that's at high risk for bad outcomes, then what I fear is that as immunity from both prior infection as well as vaccines starts to wane over time, we're going to see with future surges a coupling again of bad outcomes to infection rates. And I think that's what we really have to avoid.
0: So what are some of the models of success and successful action in lower income countries that we can look to?
2: Yeah, I think it gets down to making sure that there are clear national priorities. In many cases, they are. They're not the same as global targets that we've set. So how can we serve national set priorities and targets? And secondly, how can we make sure that going forward, those COVID response programs are integrated? In some cases, countries are seeing opportunities to integrate into routine immunization their EPI programs to make sure that there's more of a life cycle approach to immunization and that as a way to re-energize the gaps that we've seen with routine immunization. In other instances, we're seeing countries see the opportunity to integrate COVID response into stronger primary care, which means building surveillance. It might be symptomatic surveillance. It might be genomic surveillance. It could be safety surveillance with these products, but really as a mechanism to build capabilities that can strengthen primary care over time. So integration is important, but we have to ask the question of integration into and with what. Is it routine immunization? Is it a adult immunization as a emerging component of primary care? And what are the other capabilities, like having better data that we can make sure are embedded into systems over time?
1: You know, I had a chance to travel in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand in the summer, and I was quite struck by the resilience and the quality of response in countries that are quite, those are quite variable countries. Uh, yet, getting back to Andrew's point about, you know, what's the model's what are the models we can point to? Certainly you can look at Vietnam and even you can look at Cambodia, which is a, a poor, a very, very poor place with very weak infrastructure and certainly Thailand. What are the other places that you would point to as as those that we should be holding up as exemplary?
2: Yeah, I think there are examples all around the world, right? And you can look at Rwanda as an example. They rolled out vaccination quite promptly. They have a national strategy. They've rolled out you know, equitable access across, again, it's not an enormous population, but one that uh, that has clear access. And, and part of the learning there, which I think applies more broadly, is that The places that were better at emergency response are places that had well-functioning health systems at baseline. You can't build beyond your existing capabilities. So we really need to continue to invest in those health system capabilities. So if you have a high functioning health system, you can take on more challenges and you can be more resilient. If you're already in a setting where you have conflict or other fragile settings or where you don't have high functioning health system, then it's really hard to say you're going to be prepared to take on an emergency response.
1: Let's talk a little bit about therapies because you're involved in some really innovative work there. The COVID Treatment Quick Start, which is a consortium effort that you were involved in helping launch. We have a working group on therapies. We're putting together a final report to be issued very soon, in the next couple of weeks. This whole question of what next on therapies is a very big and very, very important question. And you're trying to pilot, you're trying to use your good offices and your partners in a subset of countries to sort of make the case, prove the case that you can have test and treat Evolve effectively. Say a bit about how this is working. I know it's early days. You probably can't point to dramatic results yet, but you're off and running nonetheless. So tell us a bit about this.
2: Yeah. We started to look at what were then the emerging oral antiviral treatments, Molnupiravir, Paxlovid, almost a year ago, and released a report in the first quarter of this year, really laying out the opportunities presented to complement vaccination with access to other interventions and test and treat capabilities with some really clear recommendations on what the U.S. government could do, what WHO could do, what others could do. And given the environment that we have been in, we have not seen a huge amount of progress in making this feasible. So we tried to pull together a consortium ourselves with some of our core partners. So really, the COVID GAP partnership as a starting point, Duke University and the COVID collaborative and working very closely with the Clinton Health Access Initiative, (CHAI) and bringing on Americares as another key implementing partner. And we've been grateful that the Open Society Foundations really stepped up in a catalytic way and very quickly ahead of what was then in May, the second global COVID summit was out in front and saying, we're going to put money behind such a consortium to make sure that we can roll this out. And since then, we've been fortunate that the Hilton Foundation and Pfizer have stepped up, both for financial support and in the case of Pfizer with a donation of a 100,000 courses of Paxlovid. So the goals of what we're trying to do is first and foremost, save lives where it's feasible. So make sure that oral antivirals are available for high-risk individuals and populations in low- and middle-income countries. Our first rollout is going to be in nine countries in Africa, plus one in Southeast Asia. In addition to that, what we're trying to do is create the operational research base For others to build on that we can be a first mover and be more nimble than some of the multilaterals or public approaches, generate the lessons learned to make it easier to scale up and build national strategies around around uh, in the future. And third, we're trying to make sure that there's a bridge strategy. The long term solution has to be access to affordable and quality assured generic medications. We still think in the case of Paxlovid, we're probably six months away from that being the case and potentially even more. And thus the opportunity to use donated product from Pfizer to make sure that these programs can be up and running while we try to accelerate access to the generics over time. So we're optimistic. We are often running in these 10 countries. Our aspiration is to make sure that the first patients get access to these oral antivirals through our program by the end of this month, so by the end of September 2022, and to use this not as just another pilot or just another demonstration, but really as a catalytic model by which we can ramp up broader access to not just therapies, but test-to-treat models. Well,
1: kudos to you. And, you know, we're going to learn a lot about what's scalable at a national level, what's, you know... We're going to learn a lot through this in terms of what's really feasible and possible. And some of it will get people to shake off their skepticism and their inertia around this. And some of it will inform us of what some of the significant barriers may be. Andrew's going to do the closing here today. This has been a great conversation. Krishna, as always, you guys do remarkable things and it's great to talk them through. So
0: over to my colleague here. Thanks, Steve. Krishna, we always like to ask our guests to weigh in at the end, as you know, what gives you the most optimism going forward? Well,
2: first, thanks, Steve and Andrew. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And thanks for your leadership as well and the collaborations we've had. What gives me optimism is that we have tremendous leadership, especially at country levels. We are starting to see that resilience among populations. We're starting to see countries really reemerge from a couple of dark years and take stock that we've taken a few steps back, but there's a lot to look forward to. And so I think if we can keep Moving our policy priorities in the right direction, we can make sure that it's linked to an enormous amount of really high potential opportunities that exist on the ground. So I'm optimistic about what's happening at the country level, at the community level. I'm also optimistic that we've started to see the emergence of really high quality regional organizations. The Africa CDC, as one example, is a young organization. It's only about six years old at this point, and yet has proven itself during difficult times in this COVID pandemic, is starting to be more autonomous, is starting to show continental leadership. And I think that's exactly what we need for the coming decades.
1: Thank you so much, Krishna, and good luck with this. We've been very generous. It's great to connect again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.